Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to another episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This was an episode that was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic, and it features the behavioral science experts Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. They're the authors of a new book titled Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. And as you can tell from the title, it deals with the issue of how do we subconsciously decide who is worth listening to and who isn't. They were interviewed by Helen Lewis, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic. And we hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, staff writer at The Atlantic, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks, behavioural science experts and authors of Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. We'd really appreciate if you could spread the word about this podcast by telling your friends and please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Let us know what you think and help others find the show. Hello, Stephen and Joseph. Hello there. Hello. First of all, let's have a kind of broad overview of the book. So the book is about, as we say, who we listen to. to who, is, who is your intended audience when you're writing this book? I think the intended audience are people, you know, who are not necessarily psychology experts, but are interested in the topic, like most people are, I think, and kind of curious about these psychological questions that you don't typically ask every day. Um, so it's it's as much for people going on a holiday who want an interesting book to read about why what's going on in the world is going on, as much as it is for a more kind of educated psychologist reader as well. Okay, and... You, first of all, you delineate the two types of messengers into hard and soft messengers. Explain that to me. Yeah, well, actually, perhaps before I even explain that, it might be worthwhile just pointing out where we're coming from. Because mm. cause what, it was a couple of years ago when we were working together, Joe and I, that we noticed this thing that seemed to be happening constantly every day, which was people weren't really paying attention to what someone was saying. And instead, they were just basing their decision on whether I should pay attention to what is being said by who was actually saying it. So, you know, the classic example, and everyone seems to have this one, I think, or, or know or know someone has had this example. You know, you have an idea, Helen, and you, you know, tell someone about this idea, and the reception you get is perhaps not the one that you expect. People look at you and they think, really? I'm not really sure if that's a good idea. But then a couple of days later, perhaps maybe a couple of weeks later, someone else comes along says the exact same thing that you've been saying for weeks, and now everybody thinks it's the best idea since sliced bread. And, I mean, that essentially is what we're talking about in this book, is why do we listen to certain people and ignore others? 
often when what's being said is the exact exactly the same thing. It, it seems to to Joe and I that you know what's being said these days matters often a lot less than who is actually saying it. It reminded me of uh, when Mary Beard gave her lecture on the public voice of women. She quoted from a Punch cartoon that I love and I've, I've sent to many friends, which is, that, you know, that is a great suggestion, Miss Triggs, perhaps one of the men would like to make it. <laughs> and there, there is that dynamic, particularly, and you mentioned this in the book, as a kind of gender yeah. dynamic about yeah. who gets... Um, Listen to, but but let's we'll come back to that because I think that's one of the most interesting strands of this. But yeah, first of all, the high level, top level, yeah. Joe, give me hard and versus soft messengers. What are the differences? Mm-hmm. So I guess the the key differences are you know although we like to think we listen to people who have the best ideas, um, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes we defer to hard messengers who have status, and they can get status through one of four routes, um, and those are having a high socioeconomic position, so signs of that they're well-established, well-connected, wealthy. Um, They can be seen as competent, so they know what they're doing, they're skilled, experienced, or they have potential um, to be those things. They may be dominant, so brash, assertive, confident, just strong and forceful. Um, Or they may be attractive, um, which is a slightly different kind of proposition, but essentially they also have status because um, they have value in people's eyes for um, uh, desirable reasons. Um, the, the other type of messenger, like you say, is a soft messenger, and they come from a very different place, which is that they seek um, to kind of get along with others rather than try and get ahead of others. And they develop connectedness through four routes, and it could be in combination or just one. And these are warmth, vulnerability, trustworthiness, and charisma and so essentially they're trying to express their positivity to others they're showing that they care about others that they are a human being too and they can connect on an emotional level um, that they are loyal and faithful they're not going to kind of betray you they have your best interests at heart as well as potentially you know being able to connect a broader group to a, a an overarching goal and that's the charismatic I think one of the things I found interesting in that early section was you talk a bit about uh, Michael Burry who was one of the sources for Michael Lewis's right. The Big Short yeah. um, and was played by Christian Bale in the, in the film version and he made an enormous amount of money by betting that the American subprime mortgage market was about to collapse that it was a huge bubble essentially right but no one listened to him because essentially he said this himself because he's kind of weird, right? He is yeah. he's autistic and says he has difficulty kind of relating to people. He's had an, uh, a, a, a false eye from an accident he had early on. He lost it. I mean, maybe this is just in the film, but he play, plays metal music incredibly loudly in his right. office, right? And yeah. turns up to work wearing kind of sweatpants and stuff like that. And therefore, people couldn't hear the message that he was, he was preaching. Exactly right. Uh, he had what turned out to be the absolutely correct message. Uh, he predicted it, but he wasn't the right person to deliver that message. He, he wasn't like the people that he was presenting that message to. He was distinctly different to his audience. And it's very easy, I, I think, uh, particularly in this kind of crazy information overloaded world that we live in, where it's kind of pretty hard to work out whether we should be listening and paying attention to one thing or the other. And so what we'll often do is we'll just use a simple characteristic or trait that we see in a messenger to either listen to them 
or in the case of Michael Burry, just dismiss him off the bat. Do you think that's changing? Because I think it's really interesting that Greta Thunberg has been so successful as an environmental campaigner. And she's talked about having Asperger's and saying, you know, this is my, you know, autism is my superpower. And 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 there and, and people have called her all of those things that Michael Burry got called her, saying that she was, you know, weird and Wednesday Adams and not likable and not relatable. But she, because she's managed to be able to talk about it more, she seems to be able to move that conversation on. I think that is the case. So in, in the context of these hard and soft effects, what she is actually done is she's embraced the vulnerability so she hasn't you know kind of tried to sweep it under the carpet or you know pretend it's actually not there and and often you know there is there are some folks in society that only have perhaps a vulnerability that they can actually play on and so i think that's that's what's actually happened there that signaling of a vulnerability has opened people's ears to a really important message that she's had to to send. And Joe, I want you to take me through some of the research about status, because that was stuff was really, I mean, it's it's a fairly self-evident to say we listen to people that other people listen to, right? We're kind of herd animals. That makes a lot of sense. But some of the ways in which people signal their status were more, so for example, let's talk about the, the branded t-shirt, uh, mm. you know, what that can, what that can do for you, what a kind of Lacoste little crocodile can do for you. Yeah. Well, it's funny because brands do change over time. And so Lacoste, you know, is is an example in 2011, it was effective. Today, I'm not sure it would be. But the underlying principle remains the same. And that is that people were, were asked to go up to shoppers in a mall and ask them these small requests, like, would you fill out a survey? Or they were asking for donations. And they all wore the same thing. They had a green jumper on. The only difference was that in one condition, they were wearing a little Lacoste label on the green jumper. And when people saw pictures of these people, then they rated them as more wealthy or they seemed that they were slightly higher status. And the effect was there in the behavior as well. So people were more willing to say yes when they asked them to fill out a survey. They donated more money when these chuggers came around asking for money. And it's it's an effect that, I like I say, it's happened with Lacoste in shopping malls in Holland. And it happened years before that on the roads of California, where um, Anthony Dube was driving around in Palo Alto in a car with a grad student in the back seat, waiting at red lights. And as they turned green, failing to start the car to see whether the car behind would honk. Mm. And the idea was, depends what car they're in. So if they're in a high status car, are you going to wait longer to honk and give me more leeway than if I was in a low status car? And that's exactly what they found. Um, both the the number of people who honked and how long it took them to honk differed across these conditions, depending what car they were in. Um, and hilariously, you don't often get this reading boring research papers, but they had a little joke in there, which was sometimes a car even rammed into the back of our back bumper to signal to move because our car looked like it was just needing a a boost. (laughs) Let's dive into this because one of the things I got very strongly when reading this is that you talk about some attributes which are more or less kind of, you know, you you can learn to be more charismatic, you learn to be more personable, but to some extent it's something you're born with or or you're not. How much can people make themselves a more effective messenger? Well, I think you've picked up ex- exactly right on that point. There are certain characteristics that, you know, we can perhaps enhance or, or improve upon, but some are really quite deeply wired into us. Um, you, know, you know, to a certain extent, a- attractiveness is something that is, is gifted at, at birth. But again, you know, there's, there's good evidence from the psychological literature that we can do things to, you know, improve at least our perception of, of how attractive we are. We know that 
you know, food service, for example, female ones in, in restaurants, if they wear red clothes, red lipstick, they typically get higher tips and gratuities, largely from male diners than others. So there's an example. Mm. One of my favorite examples, actually, is providing social skills and, you know, uh, pla- in some in- instances, plastic surgery to convicted villains, people in prison, yeah. uh, uh, to see whether or not that, you know, is more likely to, you know, encourage them to become a, a more, you know, inclusive member of society when they're actually released. And what they actually find is, is that, you know, prisoners, for example, that have uh, their tattoos removed while they're incarcerated in prison, in extreme cases, have plastic surgery. When they then follow them after they've been released, they do actually, uh, they're much less likely to actually then get imprisoned again. The interesting thing, of course, is that it's not that they actually commit less crime. It's just that when they go to court again, they're actually seen to be more attractive and then less likely to get uh, a custodial sentence. That's the. A lot of your book is really about how shallow people are, right? I think, yes. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it is. No, I think it's very, like, and I thought it was very interesting that sometimes that shallowness does seem to pay off, right? So, for example, you talk about the experiment with. Uh, evaluations for teachers where people kind of give their snap decision based on what like 10 seconds of footage mm-hmm. and no sound and that tracks very closely how that what their snap decisions are with actually the proper more methodologically sound evaluations those teachers get yeah well what was happening in that study was that both sets of people who were watching the teacher were making the same evaluations based on these nonverbal behaviors so people could see after 10 seconds whether they were confident enthusiastic optimistic And this came through in a term of teaching as well. And so even if they might have been teaching the same material, people were forming these impressions for three months. And that is what counted towards their high evaluations. So it's not that they're better necessarily. It's that people are making inferences about how they're communicating, either in a three-month-long class or in a 10-second video. That's interesting. So it's not necessarily they were better teachers. It was just that people maintain, you know, the same things that we like, we instantly get are the same things that we rate more highly on Mm -hmm. closer reflection. Well, the funny thing is, because they were then communicating in a way that people were receptive to, maybe they were better teachers. Okay, well, this is so this is one of the things I found is a really interesting sort of semi submerged strand of the book is I feel like sometimes you there might be little wry commentary on current events uh, buried in there somehow. (laughs) And actually, one of the big problems about politics is that we overstate, you know, when people look and sound like we expect a leader to sound, we think we assume competence on their behalf, or we assume that they've got something to say in a way that can be quite conservative with a kind of small c, right? This is one of the issues that we have what we think a good messenger looks like. And we just compare people to that. So confidence counts for a lot, even if even if the content of what someone is saying is absolute bollocks. Uh, yeah, abs- that that's exactly right. Looking and sounding right does seem to be often much more important than actually being right. And perhaps one of the reasons for that is is it's kind of tough to quickly determine whether someone is an expert or does have competence or is worth listening to. And so you're right. We use these often shallow, you know, instant cues to decide whether this person is worthy of attention or not. And, you know, follow their advice, regardless of its wisdom, truthfulness or folly. I think it really made me think, I just was doing a discussion for the BBC about, you know, journalism and who should get a kind of platform on it. And it Mm -hmm. strikes me that the message of, one of the messages of your book is that the kind of gatekeepers, whether it is, you know, a big major broadcaster or it's Twitter giving out blue ticks or it's, you know, Facebook promoting stuff into the newsfeed, that is an enormous responsibility for those places to take on because they are implicitly signaling this is someone worth listening to. Yeah, they're credentializing them from the from the off and as a result 
you know, you often get the same voices heard. Mm. Um, you know, they're reliable. That they're known to be, you know, either of a position. They're rich. They're famous. They're attractive. They're wh- whatever it may be. But yeah, we're just using those surface signals. Okay, so the next thing that I thought was that my worry about what you've uncovered here is actually that there is a there is a real kind of political angle to it in the sense that, you know, you write about the fact that uh, one of the things you can do to seem more authoritative is is lower your voice. And we know there's a famous example of Margaret Thatcher doing that. You know, one of the things that makes you seem more authoritative is being taller. And then I just began to think there is a kind of big problem here with the fact that some of these characteristics are essentially the best messenger is a middle class white man with the vocabulary of you know with a rp accent and how is is you know how can you break that as a model of what a great messenger looks like that it looks like one type of person who's traditionally has looked like authority to us yeah and that is the stereotype of the prototypical leader um and it's 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 a problem and i think until you break that stereotype it's going to be very hard to sort of refrain from the consequences of these unconscious biases so the fact that people have in mind a like you say kind of middle class white tall male when they're thinking about a leader might mean that once that person comes into an interview they automatically respond more favorably to them and i think that the steps that are being taken now are small steps in the right direction and it's not till you start kind of breaking down these stereotypes in people's minds before they really have a chance to come out that will really get to where we want to be. And how, okay, so the other reflex of that is we're all receptive to messages. How do we become better at evaluating the message rather than getting hung up on the messenger? It's tough is is the answer because things happen so quickly. And so, mm. uh, you know, so we, we're, it's almost we're required to make these assessments in an instant in order just to be able to navigate from the start of the day until the end of the day. And so I think a starting point might be just to be aware of them. Mm. But I'm not entirely convinced that being aware of them is a necessary defense all the time. Joe and I have got numerous examples. I, I, you know, I find myself listening to someone and thinking, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then I reflect afterwards, and I think, actually, that makes no sense at all. But I've, I've been suckered in myself. And so you know, if two guys that actually write the book <laughs> get sucked into this, I think that's just a, a, a demonstration of, of just how powerful these the, these traits are. But an understanding of them is, I think, you know, we, we make a couple of comments towards the end of the book about perhaps some not deliberately controversial ideas, but I think we do need help sometimes to kind of recognize who might be worth listening to or what platform or entity might be worth listening to. So, you know, one of the ideas we think about is, you know, should, you know, media platforms that essentially disseminate news, should they be incentivized for telling the truth, for example? You know, should we have, you know, in much the same way as we have traffic light systems on food that lets us know whether it's good, bad or indifferent for us? Should we be doing similar things on news platforms? Should we be encouraging, you know, education uh, policy that, you know, introduces some of these ideas that really do importantly shape what people, you know, listen to and perhaps what they then subsequently believe and become, whether we should be introducing some of these insights earlier in the curriculum so that we're at least giving, you know, future generations the ability to try and defend themselves against, you know, these incredibly powerful messenger traits. Well, let's talk through the messenger traits in a minute, but first let's take a quick advertising break. 
I'm back with Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks, authors of Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't and why. Joe, I want to ask you a bit about um, dominance because I think it's a really interesting one of your your traits that you you kind of outline as being... Because it is a bit of a double-edged sword, that one, because, you know, you talk about the fact that you know, people owning on the space, lounging the furniture. I think everybody will be where you can walk into a meeting and pretty much instantly know who's the boss because they, you know, they're the most commanding physically most of the time, right? But, but that seems to me that also slightly unfashionable messenger trait. Like, it's one mm. that's... When you, you know, because I, well, as soon as you talk about that stuff, I sort of think about, as you write in the book, Donald Trump pacing around the debates and sort of hovering over Hillary Clinton, or the way that Boris Johnson in the Tory leadership debates kept continually sort of this low grade chuntering while everybody else was talking, which was a signal of, I'm the front runner. I know I'm the front runner. I'm the kind of <laughs> alpha gorilla in this situation. But for as many people as like that, it repels other people, right? Mm. This is one of the kind of paradoxes that lots of your leadership traits are. Some they're effective in some situations and not sometimes. What is it? Is it a matter of moderating them? Well, it, it is a matter of context and the, it is a matter of personality as well. Who's listening? So both have been shown in studies to have an effect on how effective a dominant, uh, dominant leader would be. And I mean, the fact is, we in a in a sense like to deny that we would be swayed by a dominant leader because it's not a nice thought. It's not nice to admit to ourselves. We also don't like to think of ourselves as conforming and submissive to that kind of personality. But the truth is, it is something that resides in all of us from a very early age. That big and strong is essentially associated with gets their way. And you, you can see that in infant studies with infants as young as 10 months old by measuring their eye gaze. And you see that once they see a character be dominant in one situation, they expect them to get more rewards subsequently. So that's terrifying to me. And you see it in apes as well. So it's, not, it's, it's really ingrained within us. And to, to deny that it's there is doing us a disservice in a way because these are evolutionarily hardwired and... Ignoring them means that they can come out in ways that we don't always see coming. And I think that's partly what's happening at the moment. The fact that we we think we live in a certain world and we don't like to think that we would be swayed by dominance. Um, but when the conditions are, are right, then large swaths of people are. You, I mean, you do talk a bit about kind of bubbles. And I think that's one of the things that that kind of analysis really sort of says to me is that there is a kind of an agreement among a certain set of people that these are the things that we like, these are the things that we don't like. We don't like bullies. And actually, it turns out that no, we don't all think that. And if there's one thing that I guess the experiments that you talk about in the book show, it's that what people say they do and what people do, like the study with the clipboard, people say, well, I won't be swayed by what jumper someone's wearing. And then they completely are, right? Mm. Yeah. Why shouldn't you uh, accept CVs with a photo attached? I like this as a, as a thing. <laughs> or you know, Because these are practical things that you can do to, to try and reduce this sort of messenger bias, right? Exactly. I think you're talking about that fascinating Italian study uh, where the researchers you know, sent out CVs for real jobs, bona fide mm -hmm. jobs. And uh, in certain conditions, they, they just sent the CV. But in other conditions, they clipped a photograph of the applicant, sometimes male, sometimes female, sometimes attractive, sometimes less attractive, and just simply measured the response rates. And, you know, as you can probably predict from the, the kind of vein of this conversation so far, you know, guys did better than girls. And, and attractive women typically got more callbacks for interviews and got invited to assessment centres than their, their less attractive peers. And that's 
that attractiveness cue. It's it's depressing. It's just it is what it is. And um, so you know, I think the it's idea being that that yeah, yeah. We, we we just you know anything that we can actually do to kind of. Um, level the playing field for all candidates is going to be important. Of course, you know, the reality is at some point, you know, you know, prospective employers are going to want to meet us and yeah. look us in the eye. And so at some point they will see us on that, you know, visual surface level. But yeah, that's it's kind of the things that I did on. like about the book is that it kind of makes you think about what the kind of proactive things you can do in your life are in order to stop yourself being susceptible to being kind of led right. astray by these these biases that we all have, right? And and blind CV writing where you don't have someone's name and you don't have someone's photo is is likely to kind of concentrate your mind more on what they actually yeah. do. And I see now more jobs moving away from list your qualifications towards do these tasks or like, you know, give me, you know, write me a summary of, of what you would change about, you know, the website if you ran it or whatever it might be, because otherwise you just get hung up on. Exactly. And that, and, and what you're doing there is, is, is you're essentially, you've identified the messenger trait that you do want to assess, which is competence yeah. in this instance. <laughs> old fashioned idea. Not, yeah. Not, yeah. Old fashioned idea that someone that, you know, we're going to give a job to might actually be quite good at doing the yeah. job. So I think that is a you know a good example of a practical thing. You know, recognize the messenger traits that are important to this job or this relationship or this project and test for those. Now I'm gonna play a slight devil's advocate here. Yeah. And so it's all well and good in a way, kind of hiring off just applications that have no picture or no name in it or anything like that and choosing your candidate, but People value how well somebody fits into their team and that kind of cultural fit or that just meeting somebody and realizing, you know, one, you seem like a genuine person. You're not just a bot sending me an application. Yeah. And two, you seem like you would get on with everybody else here and that, you know, you, 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 you would just be a good person to have in the team. That is also something that it relies on human intuition. Um, so while it's easy to kind of um, discredit these as, as biases and leading us astray. Sometimes they are useful and that's kind of why they've developed in the first place. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really true. But I also worry about the tendency for people to hire in their own image. You know, oh, you remind me of myself mm-hmm. at that age, which is, I think is, you know what I mean? And, and which comes to something else I was going to say that if you're about connectedness, right, which is another trait that you talk about. Yeah. Um, so why should you tell people that they share Rasputin's birthday? Well, this is yeah. This is an absolutely fascinating study, and actually, um, it, it was a study that was uh, done many, many years ago by my intellectual hero, Robert Cialdini, a social psychologist from Arizona State University. You know, he essentially had his undergrad students just look at a profile of notorious characters from history. And, you know, as you probably appreciate, you, you read a page about someone like Grigori Rasputin or, or Mussolini, and you very, very quickly come to the conclusion that these were probably not very nice people. But then rather cleverly, what, the, uh, what Bob and his team did was kind of just manipulate one single piece of information. That So some of the grad students come to learn that they shared the same birthday as Rasputin. And now it's not that suddenly... They thought he was a great guy and, uh, you know, he should be, you know, clearly, you know, absolved of all his misdemeanors over the years. But they did see some warmth, some connectedness to him that resulted them being a little less harsh in their evaluation of him. You know, this, this idea that if we can come to see even just the smallest connection in another, it has that kind of 
influential halo effect on our evaluations of other things as well. Uh, and, and actually, this is a really, I, I think, interesting point that Joe and I consistently found as we were going through the research of these messenger traits is that it's not that we just necessarily see a trait in someone and then accept that as the reason why we should listen to them. Sometimes we see a trait in someone and assume because that they they look attractive that they probably are more competent or assume that because they are connected to us in some way, they're probably a little bit more inspirational, a little bit more charismatic. We, we assume lots of other things about them on the basis of an initial trait that we see that might have nothing to do with that skill at all. It's really... Yeah. With um, with all of these um, these studies, I know that you know behavioural psychology particularly has had some replication issues. And like, when is there stuff that you have looked through that we have now our understanding of what makes a good messenger has changed significantly in the last few years as a result of reviewing that those kind of classic studies? I think the main kind of principles hold. Mm. Um, so there is a lot of talk about the replication crisis, and at times it's very easy to take one example. So we, we spoke about kind of many examples of status just now and particularly kind of socioeconomic position. And, you know, one one study may fail to replicate at a time, but then you have an, another hundred backing mm. up the effect. So I think it's particularly true with the old social psychology ones like this, where you just have a limitless supply of them almost um, to back up the point. Yeah, I guess the other important point to, to keep in mind here is is that the context is consistently changing when these mm. these traits are actually playing out. So, you know, behavioral psychology is not like physics mm. where there's a single principle that is always true. It's your your go-to foundational point of view. You know, it may be that in some instances we look to a more connected, softer messenger. Uh, in other instances, we might prefer to look to that more dominant character. You know, for example, if we're uncertain or if there's some anxiety mm. those are contexts where we might prefer to pay attention and listen to the, the the dominant i want to win at all costs type of messenger so those contexts change as well which i think also plays into you know why you know sometimes they will be more potent than others and joe i just wanted to ask you about your um, grandfather john and, um, <laughs> and charisma because he's an incredible character to come through in the book yeah, no, he's an incredible character in real life, and I am lucky to have had him as a grandfather, and still going strong. He's so still he's got a booming 90... laugh. He's 94. And ta- run us through his CV, because it's quite an impressive yeah, one. Yeah, well, so funnily enough, I showed him the book, and he said, oh, you got this wrong, I'm 94, because <laughs> <laughs> he'd had his birthday since. Um, so that was the first kind of um, notable thing. But he he was he, he joined the NHS on the day it was founded. As a doctor, as right, a doctor. so qualified, yeah. And he tells very funny stories about how he had never done an anaesthetic before and somebody comes in for a surgery and it's, it's panic, it's chaos going on because it's literally the first day so they've got hundreds of people there and not enough doctors. And somebody says to him, get the anaesthetic... And he says, who's that? And he goes, it's you. <laughs> so he goes, okay, I'm the anaesthetist now. So he gets this big needle and puts it in the guy, presses down, bing, and for a minute he thought he'd killed him. Right. And he thought, this is off to a great, this is his very first day. <laughs> right. Oh, God, right. And he of went, a free service. <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah. Yeah. Can't be more heart aching than that, really. And then... The guy takes a couple seconds and starts breathing, and he thinks, "Thank God!" and 
continues and the surgery goes okay. And it was like that. And he, he was just sort of trained in a time where they were not kind of protective about your education in that sense. You, you were thrown in at the deep end. And I think he benefited a lot from that. I mean, it's, it's, he, he talks about it um, as a chaotic but um, great kind of time for, to be working in the, in the NHS, this new thing that he really believed in and was established. And because he held such passionate views, he then later went on to be uh, the BMA chairman. Um, I really hope I've got that right. <laughs> you did, you did. Uh, and a, a hugely influential character in the implementation of the seatbelt, the universal seatbelt law. And, um, um, yeah, and, uh, when, and, and condoms and um, yeah. the, the kind of, you know, struggle with AIDS patients. All the big ethical debates yeah. of the time. Yeah. yeah, he sounds incredibly charismatic. Before we go, I just have to ask you, because I learned a new word, which I'm always really excited to do. Stephen, tell me, what is surgency? Surgency. So like insurgency, but without the in, right? Yeah. Surgency. So surgency is a, a feature of a charismatic messenger. And it's essentially that ability to exude, you know, passion, you know, positivity, uh, a kind of an enthusiasm about an idea, particularly an idea that brings people together, you know, that uh, almost kind of creates some unifying vision that everyone can can work towards. Yeah, surgency. Okay, well, there we go. Uh, Stephen Martin, Jason Marks, author of Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't and Why. Come for the yeah, behavioural psychology insights. Stay for the slightly shady commentary on British politics, I think is the answer to that. Thank you both for joining me. Thank, Thank you very you. much.